So Psalm 100, the psalmist writes this, starting in verse 1. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. So obviously we're coming up on, on Thanksgiving week, right? And so I'm, I'm sure many of you this week will be traveling, you'll be going different places. Um, and you probably also realize that this was where this is the 402nd anniversary of Thanksgiving. We just passed that big sort of momentous um, anniversary uh, in of the 400th anniversary of the celebration of Thanksgiving. And so it, it was sort of sad because I'm a history guy, and so when those big kind of things pop up, those big uh, anniversary events, I, I've got a I'm, I'm got my radar on them or whatever. But the crazy thing was is that we were in the middle of COVID during that time, right? And so all during COVID, um, you couldn't sort of celebrate in the ways that might be uh, what that, that event deserved in, in celebrating that first Thanksgiving. So you probably know the story from maybe from the Peanuts cartoon uh, at the very least or, or um, from, from history class or whatever. But while those pilgrims had landed in the fall of 1620, um, it was not until 1621, the next year, when they shared in that famous meal, right, where the pilgrims sat down with, with hundreds of Native Americans from the Poconokit tribe um, with their cheap Massasoit. And despite the pictures that you may have seen, right, there were no long tables with, with white tablecloths. Um, there was no pumpkin pie. Uh, there was no cranberry sauce. Um, there probably was turkey, actually, um, at least if, if the written accounts by William Bradford are correct. There was probably not ham, though, which should put to rest forever that debate about what we should be eating on, on Thanksgiving Day, I think. Um, but in many ways, that celebration that day was, was very similar to any of the community harvest festivals that, that they had participated in in the old country, except for one very important thing, is the people participating in this festival, this, this meal that day, were pilgrims, and they weren't just pilgrims, they were Puritans. And the Puritans knew something, that at the end of the day, everything, every single thing in their lives came back to God and his faithful provision for them. Because the, the, the Puritans knew something, something that Christians have known throughout all uh, history, is that thanksgiving is at the heart of Christian devotion. It is, it is central to that. And a lack of thanksgiving in our hearts is always going to be a bellwether of the fact that we are drifting from God in some way when we become unthankful. And by the same token, any recognition or act of thanksgiving is a kind of repentance. It is a kind of turning back to God and acknowledging God and beginning a journey back to him, thanking him for what he has done. So Thanksgiving, is, I'm probably, you're probably aware, looms pretty big sort of in the cultural consciousness of our country. It's notable and something that we should praise God for that over the years, many of our presidents, particularly during times of, of crisis or national trouble, 
have called or, or proclaimed special days of prayer and thanksgiving for our nation. That's something that, that doesn't happen in other countries. By the same or by an opposite token, though, it's also sad and telling, I think, that we have a culture that tends to shift directly from the holiday of Halloween straight into the holiday of Christmas, both of them very lucrative financial holidays. And we seem to oftentimes just sort of skip over the Thanksgiving celebration. But over the decades, over the centuries, America has recognized, just like those Puritans did, that Thanksgiving is a necessary, it's a right response to God, and we should take special time to do that. And that's what we find in this passage. That's what we come to in Psalms chapter 100, and we're going to sort of use four as our, our, our starting verse, um, and then we'll kind of work back down through the passage. But in verse four, he says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. God calls his people to thanksgiving, to enter into his courts, enter into his presence with praise, with exaltation of his name. He also tells us, and, and we see this in the passage, how we can express that thanksgiving and the, the thoughts and the focus that will aid us in expressing thanks to him. So how can we express thankfulness? Obviously, there's tons of ways that we can express thankfulness, but in this passage, we get a couple specific ones. Number one, we can express thankfulness by singing. By singing to our God. Verse one, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. I know some of you are like, that's why I don't sing, because it is a noise when I sing, right? But the Lord isn't concerned about that. He calls us to sing. He, call, he commands that of us. In fact, what we find is that singing, at one level, is an act of obedience. You may be familiar with, with Keith Getty. He's a, a Christian songwriter. I'm sure, I would bet anyway, that, that you sing some of the songs that uh, he and his wife have written uh, for the church. But Keith Getty says this. He says, singing is an act of obedience. We gather and sing because we're called to, like telling the truth. We're loving our wives and our children, like loving our neighbor as ourselves. These may seem like bold statements, but consider this. Singing is a real and tangible expression of loving the Lord with our whole hearts and our whole selves and loving our neighbors as ourselves. Okay, so we're commanded to sing, but that's not the part that I want to focus on in that verse. I want to focus on the word joyful in that passage, verse 1. We may sing out of duty, we may sing out of, of, of a response to a command, but God wants us to sing out of joy. Joy that overflows from the thankfulness that we have in our hearts for who God is and what he has done. So I don't know about you, but, but I love going to live music events, all right? The sad thing is, is you just about can't afford to go to live music events anymore. Man, they've just about priced normal people um, out of them. But when I was a kid, uh, as soon as I could drive, man, I was buying tickets and going to concerts and going to all these places. And there is something incredible that happens when you are in an audience and everybody knows the words and everybody is singing along, whether that is a group of 5,000 people or a group of 50,000 people singing along. And, you, and you've probably been in one of those concerts where, where the people know the song so well, at some point the, the artist 
He stops singing, right? And he just lets the audience sing and say the words. Sometimes it might be because the song is fun and and, and catchy or something like that. Other times it's because it's a song that has been meaningful and, and everybody knows the words because it has affected everybody in the same kind of way. Years ago, when I was uh, working in college ministry, we used to take uh, students down to Atlanta every year for this thing called the Passion Conference, which which some of you may be familiar with. And so you would go down, and it would be all college students. And the first few years we went, there were 15 or 20,000 students packed into the Georgia World Congress Center, and it was an incredible event. And then one year they said, hey, guys, next year when we come, we are going to pack out the Georgia Dome. 60,000 seats, that's what we want to do. We want you to get everybody you know and come down here. And they did. The next year, the Georgia Dome, 60,000 seats were filled. And to listen to the sound of 60,000 people singing these praise and worship songs was incredible. It was something that was, I know, life-changing for, for lots of people and some of the students that we went there with. But it's an incredible thing when God's people sing together. And bear witness to who God is in those ways. We should recognize that singing is, is, man, it's a weird thing nowadays. Think about it. People don't sing except in entertainment contexts usually now. There's only about, I can only think of basically two places where we sing. We sing in church and we sing the national anthem, right? That's about the only two places we sing because there is something we sacred about singing, And yet we've shifted it to where it seems like the only time we ever mainly do it outside of church is is in an entertainment context. And I wonder sometimes if unchurched people come in and are a little weirded out, if they've never been around a church that sings, if that is an odd thing for them. Because again, there's not many places that do that devotionally in our lives anymore. But here's the thing, we do that as a witness, We sing as a witness to the goodness and graciousness of God. And it always is a witness, no matter what. It is a witness to ourselves. It is a witness to the guests in our congregation. It is a witness to our children. It's a witness to our neighbors and the passerbys of this congregation and everybody else. And it's a witness of the joy and thankfulness that we show towards God. And if we do it faithfully, It shows our devotion, and if we do it unfaithfully, then it shows our boredom and our apathy. So we sing. But that's not the only way we show our thankfulness to God. Verse 2, we also show our thankfulness, we express that through serving the Lord. Verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence again with singing. So in a similar way, serving the Lord is a call to obedience, right? It is a command for us to do, but I want to zoom in on that other word. We don't just serve out of obligation. We serve out of what? Out of gladness. Gladness is the key. Duty and and obligation, those aren't bad motives. They're true, but they're just not enough is the problem. Because what happens in our hearts is is if if we are having a difficult time obeying the Lord, sometimes that obligation can hold us in place. It can keep us from falling away for a moment. But our lives aren't meant to run on obligation. Our lives are meant to run on joy and on gladness. The reality is, is those things change a task, any task really, from a drudgery into a delight. Our church 
is, and, I, and yours may be too, I don't know if we, we're about to start our Lottie Moon Christmas offering, and, and um, we take money for international missions through the Lottie Moon Christmas Fund um, over the course of the month of December. Um, and you may not be familiar with the story of Lottie Moon. I'll bet as Baptists, some of you probably are very familiar with it. Um, but while she was serving in China, in, in the midst, towards the end of her ministry, in the midst of oppression, political unrest, starvation, loneliness, lack of support from, from the churches at home that supported her, or were supposed to be supporting her, she wrote a letter home and she said this line in it. She said, I have never found mission work more enjoyable. I constantly thank God that he has given me work that I love so much. How could she say something like that in the midst of those struggles? It's because she had a joy and a gladness when it came to serving the Lord. Now, obviously, when somebody has acted in a kind way to you, I hope the case is that you feel some sort of desire within you. You are happy um, to reciprocate that, that service, right? There's a sense of payback that, that we feel. But, but I want you to know that that's not the main thing that's going on as we serve God either. It's not just transactional when we serve God. It's relational. Man, I'm happy to serve God because he has graciously served me. But I recognize also a disconnect in my own heart sometimes when it comes to the things of God. Why is it that so often the simplest acts of service are an inconvenience to me or an imposition or a drudgery? And again, I'm saying this of my own heart. Why is that? My life is certainly not any more difficult or demanding than Lottie Moon's life was. What is the motive of that inconvenience and imposition and drudgery? I'm afraid that the answer must lie in the lack of thanksgiving in my own heart. Because I have not properly reflected on God's love and service to me, that he has rendered in my life, then I am unthankful and therefore not happy to serve and to sing and to obey the way that he has called me to. So what do we need to do about that? Well, that kind of brings us to the second part of, of, of the passage. How do, we, how do we stir up thanksgiving in our hearts? How do we express that thanks, uh, as, we, as we express that thanksgiving, how do we elicit that thanksgiving um, in, in our minds and hearts? Well, we, we begin to see that played out in verse 3. The way of thanksgiving is through the knowledge of God. To know God better will lead you to be more thankful for him. And so in verse 3, he says what? Know the Lord, that he is God. Have you ever thought about this? The nature of exalting something, like enjoying it and, and taking joy and pleasure in something, can kind of have two different sides. There's a novelty side to that, and there's an intimacy side to that right? So I was thinking about Cody. Cody's a coffee aficionado, um, and, and coffee is one of those things that, that you, can, you can drink it in two different ways. Well, you can probably drink it in a lot of ways, but you can drink it in at least two different ways. 
you can on one side just sort of go, man, I like trying all these different coffees. I go to different coffee shops and I try these different uh, blends and roasts and flavors and all these things and I experience a lot of different tastes. Or you can do what I know Cody has done sometimes, is you can take one coffee and you can drink it so often and break it down so much that you know so much about it that you can taste the, the, the notes of flavor and you know how it was made and how that affects um, the, 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 the taste of it and all those different pieces. The same is true of the knowledge of God, in a sense. We enjoy receiving new information about God, right? In fact, I would bet that there are many of you who that's kind of how you judge whether or not a sermon was any good. Um, when you come and hear that sermon, you walk away and go, you know, I learned something new today that I didn't know before. And so that's, that's sort of the way that you think about um, that issue. And that's, and that's legitimate. That's a way that we enjoy and learn about God is learning new things about him. But there's also the side that is true where we grow in knowledge by digging deep into a particular truth, right? Rolling it over, reconsidering it, reapplying it to our lives in different ways. I say all that because the truths that we're about to talk about as we continue through this passage, I hope are things that you already know. I hope that I don't come to any of these passages and you go, well, huh, I never knew that about God. I hope that's not the case, all right? But that doesn't mean that we can't still grow in these things as we dig into them more, as we remember them and reassess them in our hearts and minds. And so let's look at these things that God says, know the Lord that he is God. What do we know about him? What do we see about him throughout the rest of this passage? The second half of verse 3, what does he say? It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. So on one side, this is obviously a reference to, to the fact that we, he created us, right? That we exist because of God. It is God who we began with. It is God who we continue and preserve, persevere in. The Bible says that in him we live and we move and we have our being. We owe him everything that we are. But the second half of the verse also points not just to our creation, not to, just to our existence, but to our belonging to God. A belonging that has been accomplished through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ has paid the price to win his people, to buy them back from their sin, to welcome them into the family and the fold of God. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. I'd ask the question, are you anxious about the world that we live in right now? There's a lot of crazy stuff going on. I mean, it's a crazy time to be alive. Internationally, in our own country, I'm sure you feel this and are aware of it. It's not going to get easier between now and November. I can tell you that, right? But you know what will help you to work through that anxiousness and that anxiety? Your belonging to God is one of the most calming things, most comforting truths that you can ever reflect on. That no matter what happens, no matter what happens, you are loved, you are accepted, and you belong to God in Jesus Christ. So, 
not just knowing that part, not just knowing that we are his, but knowing God's character. First off in verse 5, knowing that God is good. God is good. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. The goodness of God. What does that mean? It means he is neither apathetic nor unkind to his creation. We too easily wonder sometimes if if God has forgotten about us, that we are out here in the wilderness all by ourselves, but that is not the case. God is good. In fact, Jesus, what does he say? He says, no one is good but God alone. He is the only one who is good. The standard of goodness is in God. Everything he does is worthy of approval. You are good, God, and you do good. Every good endowment and perfect gift is from above. No good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly. And we know that For those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purposes. Now, we know this. We may not experience everything as good, right? There is still sin. There is still brokenness. But God's goodness is connected not only to his wisdom, but to his sovereignty. He is in control of all things. And even those things that seem too horrible to ever be used by God, God will find a way to turn those things backwards. I'm a big Tolkien fan, and he talks about the idea of those awful things becoming untrue one day when the whole picture is seen. You know how we can be assured of that? Because the worst thing that ever happened in the history of the world saved God's people. That the murder of Jesus Christ brought his children into the fold. If God can make Jesus' death into something good, he can make any circumstance in your life into something good. But notice, again, we immediately start talking about those, those circumstances. We say, well, you say God is good, but, but what about all these bad things? What about these difficult situations? Immediately, our attention shifts to these mysteries and these questions of, of the way God is working providentially in the world, the hard places to understand. And what do we do in that process? We completely overlook the myriad, obvious goodness of God in our daily lives, Right? You talk to somebody and you say, well, you know, God is good. Oh, yeah, well, what about earthquakes? What about child abuse? What about, um, you know, drunk drivers? Like, what about those things? Okay, well, step back first. What about the goodness of God in family and friends and fellowship and health and provision and comfort and work and home and food and community and church and the word and the ordinances and growth and babies and weddings and anniversaries and freedom and safety and opportunity and service and kindness and peace and life and love? I mean, God is pouring out his goodness on us in a billion different ways, and yet our focus is always to the weird exceptions, the things that we don't understand. That must be what defines it. That one little piece over here 
when the entire world is open to us in the goodness of God. When the second century bishop, Polycarp, was arrested, threatened with execution, they said, you either recant your beliefs or you will be killed. Polycarp said, 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and savior? His whole life, he said, was a testament to God's faithfulness and goodness. So how could he possibly turn his back on God at that point? I had a great aunt who, on her deathbed, as her family was gathered around and and she was just sort of um, waiting for that time to go to be with the Lord, she said to those standing around, you know, I've never had an unhappy day in my life. Now, I knew her history, and I knew all the things that happened in her life. And and at one level, I could say, that can't possibly be true, because I know the tragedies you've gone through, and I know the difficulties you've had. But the reason why she could say that is because Jesus Christ had been there and blessed her, and she could see how he was working and loving her throughout every circumstance of her life. And so as she looked back, she could say, and I think honestly, I've never been unhappy a day in my life. Not only in that verse 5 do we see God's goodness, but we also see God's steadfast love. We can talk about different aspects of love. We can talk about emotion. We can talk about desire. We can talk about pleasure. We can talk about passion, service. But here's what I want you to think of. When we talk about love, at its core, we are talking about sacrificial self-giving. That's what love is. To give of oneself for the good of the beloved. God has done that. He has given of himself for your good. He has sent his own son to the cross to pay your debt, to pay my debt. That is sacrificial self-giving. And what else? He says it is not just love, but it is steadfast love, resolute unwavering, unconditional. To say it flippantly, God doesn't have a crush on you, okay? He doesn't just sort of look at you and go, oh, you know, I kind of like that person right now, and, and, and I'm interested in them and attracted to them, but, man, you know, one of these days maybe I'll move on and, and, and think about it. God doesn't have a crush on you. God is committed to you. He's committed to his people And he gives of himself, he gives of his own goodness, he gives of his own blessing that we would in turn love him because he first loved us that we would give of ourselves for his joy. That's what God calls us to. And man, if it were not enough to be thankful for his goodness and his steadfast love, how does he close? God is faithful to all generations. He will always do what he said he would do. He will always fulfill every promise that he has made, always. In fact, the essence of our faith is just that. We respond in faith because God has been faithful to us first. We believe God can be trusted to do what he said he would do. And so God's faithfulness is all tied up to his other characteristics. It's it's related to his truthfulness. It's related to his reliability. But this passage also relates it to his, here's a fancy word for you, immutability. 
his immutability, his unchangingness. The fact that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he will be the same faithful God to all generations. The God who cared for Abraham is the God who cared for David, is the God who cared for Paul, is the God who cared for Augustine, is the God who cared for Spurgeon, is the God who cares for me, and the God who cares for you. And we can count on God's promises now and until the end of the world, for eternity. And so that's what God is calling us to this Thanksgiving holiday and every day. To reflect on the goodness, the love, and the faithfulness of God in our lives. In his word, in his church, throughout the history of his church. This unending spring of goodness and blessing that you will never find the bottom of. That you will never find the border, the extent. You will never find the end of it. If you start studying the goodness of God, his faithfulness, his love for you this day and did it every day, you won't exhaust God's goodness at the end of your life nor at the end of eternity. He will be that way forever. And man, the security and belonging that we find in God through those things as creator, as father, as provider, these things will nurture our hearts turn us to multiply thanksgiving towards God and that we could live out the Thanksgiving holiday and every day in a way that honors the Lord. Amen? Uh, Well, let's go to the Lord again in prayer and uh, I'll ask Alex to come back up and close us.